Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today I talk to Pedro Paulo Zalud Bastos, professor of political economy at Campinas University in Brazil, to get his analysis of the October 28th election that brought the ultra-right-wing Jair Bolsonaro to power. Bolsonaro campaigned as if he were Duterte, promising to cleanse Brazil of crime and corruption by killing tens of thousands. He won formidable support from the poor, who as elsewhere have been left behind by neoliberal austerity policies from successive governments and whose neighborhoods are riddled with violence and crime. Disappointed by political corruption and political violence, they turned from the Workers' Party, tainted by corruption, as were all the political parties. But what can they expect from Bolsonaro, who represents a violent extreme of authoritarian neoliberalism on the rise across the world. We'll ask Pedro Paulo for his analysis of the vote, Bolsonaro's political economic strategy, and what Bolsonaro's victory means for Brazilian democracy and Latin America as a whole. All this when we come back in just a moment on Jacobin Radio. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. Very pleased to have Pedro Paulo Zaluz Bastos back with us. He's a professor of political economy at Campinas University, Unicamp in Brazil. He's been our go-to person to understand the bizarrely complicated nature of Brazilian politics. We're now asking Pedro Paulo to analyze the results of last week's election, which brought the ultra-right-wing proto-fascist Jair Bolsonaro to power. Bolsonaro campaigned as if he were Duterte, promising to cleanse Brazil of crime and corruption by killing tens of thousands. He won formidable support from the poor, who has in many other places felt left behind, but whose neighborhoods are riddled with violence. The Workers' Party obviously had disappointed them, but what can they expect from Jair Bolsonaro? And that's one of the questions that we're going to ask, who represents a violent extreme of authoritarian neoliberalism, which is on the rise across the world. We're going to ask Pedro Paulo for his analysis of the vote, Bolsonaro's political economic strategy, and what the victory means for Brazilian democracy in Latin America as a whole. Pedro Paulo, welcome back. Thank you very much, Susie. So let's just get started with the results, its causes, and more extensively, as you say, the structural and political ideological results, which, by the way, for those of the listeners who are able to look at the electoral map, it couldn't be more dramatic, and it looks like there are actually two Brazils, the Northeast, which is poor and black and mostly uplifted by the Bolsa Familia, which I'm hoping that you'll explain, and then the South, which has these large-scale agricultural capital and, I guess, wider urban middle classes. So let's begin with the actual vote and who voted for Hadadje of the PT and who voted for Bolsonaro. Yes, Susie. Well, Bolsonaro had 55% of the valid votes against 45 for Adadi. But actually, when it comes to the total of votes, he had only 39. We had a total abstention and null votes of 31% of the votes. So 61% of the country didn't vote for him, right? Ah. We can't say that, of course, all Bolsonaro voters are fascists or moral conservatives misogynists, racists, homophobes, no. Many of them are desperate with the economic situation and rising crime. Others are fed up with the traditional political 
party system, right? Mm -hmm. So there is this huge dissatisfaction with the case of political corruption, the economic crisis, and the disrepute of the other traditional politicians and parties, and also the experts, especially the economists that advocated austerity, and increasing crime rates. These are the structural causes of Bolsonaro's rise. And But Bolsonaro could also... He, he tried, and he was successful, partially, to relate all of these causes with a moral crisis built into the political and cultural systems of the Brazilian democracy, and especially with PT and the cultural and ethnic minori minorities that express themselves in left movements and the PT, what he used to call the caudal minorities that I used to jump the queue. Right, mm -hmm. and Bolsonaro was was capable of filling a political vacuum because PT uh, lost a lot of backing because of Dilma's Rousseff austerity and also the corruption scandals that tarnished the Workers Party. Lula kept a lot of popularity, but he was in prison six months ago due to a botched judicial process that many jurists both here and internationally, believe it was rigged, a Kafkaian process, right? Mm -hmm. And after the Rousseff impeachment in 2016, the Tema government, Tema was a vice president, had an even worse record when it comes to corruption and economic performance, at least as, as it's seen by the public, right? And so how the vast array of center and center-right parties that uh, were together with Temer also were tarnished with, with the, both this economic and the corruption scandals. They were supposed to impeach Dilma because of corruption scandals, and actually they are much more corrupt than, than the PT, and of course Dilma was an honest politician. But Bolsonaro also filled this vacuum but could penetrate in many places that were uh, the PT's strongholds, both in urban peripheries in the southeast and many capitals in the northeast also. The whole state of Minas Gerais, who, you, who used to vote with PT and uh, Rio de Janeiro also, and all but two states in the north. So PT was circumscribed to the northeast of the country, as you mentioned, and more two states in the north. But actually, these people that decide to vote for Bolsonaro don't realize that actually Bolsonaro backed austerity and, and all the ref new liberal reforms of the Tema administration okay, and so, even want to de deepen it. Yeah, right? Pedro Paulo, that's what I really wanted to ask you because you've done a lot of analysis right here for this program and you've really shown how corrupt the entire system is and that it was... If anything, the PT, while being corrupt, was less corrupt than the more traditional parties, and certainly with the whole car wash scandal. Bolsonaro, did he stand outside of this corruption, or did he just capitalize on people's, uh, I guess, being fed up with it? You mentioned that in the far northeast, of course, where there's more poverty and where people depend on the Bolsa Familia or the subsidy, that they still stuck with the PT. But you also mentioned, as you just said, that Dilma in her second term did impose austerity. So there was no real reason to continue to support the PT. But 
Would you say that Bolsonaro, you just started to say that he'll continue this kind of neoliberalism, but in a more authoritarian fashion? And is that really the case? And is this something that we're seeing all over the world from those who would win the support of the poor, saying that they're going to no longer leave them behind, but in fact have the same policies, just minus democracy? Yes, yes. Actually, PT tried to make the election a, a referendum on Bolsonaro economic proposals and his undemocratic reputation, trying to show that actually he backed Temer. And Bolsonaro, on the other hand, could keep it at least partially as a referendum against the so-called system, Mm -hmm. what he says, in which, according to him, uh, both PT, Temer, and PSDB were members. They were birds of a feather, let's Mm -hmm. say. In that way, Bolsonaro made inroads, especially and the income bracket of two to five minimum wages from $1,000 to $2,500, more or less, according to purchasing power parity, and mainly, mostly men. And these were a typical constituency of PT, right? And Bolsonaro was perceived that as honest and ethical and an outsider politician, but actually there are some corruption some process that actually the, the justice system didn't enact it against him, but are still up in the air. He was, for instance, in so-called Furnace list, which was the, the list of the politicians that have received money siphoned off <laughs> a big state hydroelectric enterprise in the state of Minas Gerais, and he was together with Aécio Neves. But a judge sympathetic to Aécio Neves was able to not let this process go on. And also, there is now this process because it's almost surely he has hired someone that he actually hired as someone who would help him with his summer house in the, the Rio Coastal area, mm. instead of working at, in, in, in Brasilia, right? So he's, he's actually uh, appeared as an outsider politician, but he's not, not at all. But uh, he was not together with both the PT and, and the other parties that were related to the co-wash operation. Actually, he was from PT, a party that for 11 years was with PT, in the basis of support of PT, but he was uh, not very close to the leadership of the party, and and so uh, people think that he didn't get any money from the car wash operation. But it's still being investigated, right? Mm -hmm. But the main point, apart from the economic issue, the thing that differentiated him, because he tried not to discuss his uh, economic proposal, and he was able to do it because he was a Sabbath. We can talk about that later if you want. Mm -hmm. But it's mostly public safety. His stance on crime, that is a good criminal, is a dead criminal, resonates not only with the wealthier conservative circles in Brazil, but also with many poor people, right? And urban violence shot up in Brazil after the recession of 2015. Well, let's just go back to one one question, just because you raised it now, Pedro Paolo, and that is that he was able to campaign 
on getting rid of the violence and corruption that are plaguing the uh, poorer neighborhoods. And I think he called them criminal proletarians or something like that so that he could identify them. And then on, on top of that, Bolsonaro was stabbed during the campaign. You just mentioned that. And I'm assuming the fact that he survived that augmented his popularity. Is that the case? Yes, that's the case. Because in the first round, Bolsonaro had no free TV time in the political program because his party was very, very small. But he had free time in commercial TV and dominated the news cycle because of this attempt of assassination. For instance, he was known for only half of the Brazilian electorate by the time of the, the stabbing in September 6th. And suddenly everybody knew about him. He appeared also, as you mentioned, as a victim of political violence instead of a perpetrator, and could say also that he was saved by God. His second name actually is, is Messiah. Right. And, and he appeals and, to and the he, evangelicals, is right. So, you know, this, is he, yes, is he? he's evangelical. But actually, after he met his third spouse, because she is evangelical. And he usually committed many mistakes when improvising. And because of the stabbing, he could make only stage appearance on Facebook Live. And he attracted many followers on Twitter, Facebook, and WhatsApp. He was already the, the most followed politician in Brazil. And he got many more followers after that. And the difference that we have about the, the usage of social media in Brazil compared to U.S., is the fact that WhatsApp is here much more important. Right. And five years ago, uh, Facebook, which, of course, you know, it's the owner of uh, WhatsApp, made an agreement with the network providers here in Brazil so that customers wouldn't pay for data traffic using WhatsApp. Uh-huh. So for many of the Brazilian poorest, WhatsApp was the first and only means of being formatted, if not by TV. For many of them, There is no time, of course, and resources, sometimes even the capacity of understanding complex texts, reading newspapers, websites, and blogosphere. So the image and the easy messages that WhatsApp provides without transparency at all turns it into an ideal vehicle for political propaganda and the spread of fake news. And uh, Bolsonaro campaign was specialized in that. And Steve Bannon, for instance, uh, had a meeting with Bolsonaro's son and gave free constancy to Bolsonaro's political campaign also, possibly with the help of Cambridge Analytica. Mm. And it surfaced that in the last week of the second round, many business people contributed $6 million each to fund automated spread of fake news by some specialized firms on WhatsApp. The total amount that the candidates can spend in the presidential campaign is $36 million. So each business people, wow. uh, business person, contributed with $6 million. So the, the playing field had a huge slope in Bolsonaro's favor. Uh, the Supreme Court will decide upon this, but probably will just judge this only after he's sworn in. And even two events in the last week of the first round were converted by his spin doctors into fake news. The Women's March, and that we talked about when we last talked, yep. and the deposition by Antonio Palossi. So, for instance, the Women's March, I saw some pictures. He showed that a lot of women were naked or topless, and people were basically using all kinds of drugs and writing Eli now. 
mm. uh, not him. Right. right? Yeah. And he could send all these messages to his evangelical supporters. And on the other hand, uh, the same day, the day before, actually, Antonio Palazzi was uh, Lula's former finance minister, made a de- deposition with Moro, Judge Sergio Moro, who had the car watch operation. Actually, he had done the, the, the position before, but Sergio Moro decided to release the tape one week before the election. And just yesterday, Sergio Moro, who had received an invitation to join as Minister of Justice of Bolsonaro last Monday, decided to accept the invitation and will be Bolsonaro Minister of Justice, right? Right. So, so Pedro Paolo, I, yeah, and I want to take it now into like what you see as his strategy. You've mentioned that even though he campaigned as a kind of populist of the far right, like we're seeing elsewhere from Italy to Germany to the U.S. and gosh, so many at Turkey, all these far right populist authoritarians. What is his actual political economic strategy, because you've already mentioned that he's going to stay with the neoliberal strategy, which certainly flies in the face of what he campaigned on. Yes. Well, uh, he didn't need to present his proposal in detail because of this setting, but they are of the most radical neoliberal sort, uh, according to what his uh, would-be finance minister says, right? And so this honeymoon with his constituency might end soon. And I think that's the main contradiction of Bolsonaro's electoral coalition. His program is possibly the most radical new liberal program in the world. He would like to, at least his final minister said, that he would like to sell all the, the Brazilian state enterprises and also to radically change the social provision in Brazil. But like half of the Brazilian population depends on the states for a lot of things. And like 25%, especially in Northeast, depend on the state money transfers to survive, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the main contradiction that his electoral coalition has. And he might try to compensate this by showing some results on the anti-corruption drive. That's why he brought Sergio Moro as Ministry of Justice and on public safety also. But most importantly, there is this indication that he would like to change the playing field of the democratic struggle, the institutions, not necessarily will become dictator for life in a military coup, but he could change the rule, not necessarily to prevent, but at least make it very difficult for a rotation of power to happen. And this and is what he, he campaigned on as well, right? That he was opposed to democracy and in favor of the military system that was in existence after the coup. This flies in the face of sort of conventional understanding about what they want for Brazilian democracy. So how is that received? Is that something that the population is fearful of or somewhat supports? No, uh, a lot of people that back him say that he doesn't really mean it. Right. But the Supreme Court was very aggressive against him because three months ago, and it surfaced in the last week of the second round, his son made a speech in a class for would be policemen students 
that it would be easy, in case Bolsonaro had some problem with the Supreme Court, would be easy to close the Supreme Court. It would not even be necessary to send a jeep with soldiers. You just need to send a soldier and corporal, mm. right? And the Supreme Court answered very aggressively. But Bolsonaro also said that he would like to pack the Supreme Court with more than justice. And he would like also to decrease the number of Congress people to 410, or less like 25 less Congress people that we have now, and probably to reduce the importance of the Northeast, PT's stronghold. But he backed down of these proposals in the end. But he said, and he didn't back down with this, that he would finish off activism in Brazil and would put left militants and politicians into prison or exile, right? And how could he do it? Well, there are two laws that actually were discussed last Wednesday that the conservative coalition tried to pass just after he was elected. One law is the new terrorism law against activism, and basically they would criminalize any kind of activism, and especially special reference for the landless movement and the homeless movement, and the homeless movement, whose leader is Gleb Bolos, who was the candidate for PSOL in this election. And the second law would be the school without party, which would allow persecution against teachers. And three days from the election, there was a coordination of regional electoral courts to persecute some teachers and especially students' movement, forcing them to, like, take some placards against fascism of the uh, universities and colleges. And the Supreme Court also was against it, happily. But, as I mentioned, he invited Sergio Moro and Minister of Justice, and it surfaced that he did this invitation before the first round, not after the runoff. His vice president said that. So this invitation tainted the result of the election because, as I mentioned, Moro decided to air the deposition of Antonio Palossi just like seven days before the election. And this deposition was used in the barrage of accusation by WhatsApp that Bolsonaro did against the PT in the last week of the election, right? But Sergio Moro is very popular, and Bolsonaro has just been elected, so we don't know exactly which kind of conflict we might have between both of them and the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court decides, for instance, that this campaign on WhatsApp was financed illegally, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, and in other words, you'll have grounds for yet another scandal to be investigated. But I wanted to ask Pedro Paulo, in terms of how Bolsonaro campaigned and how he's proposing to govern, if those who voted for him did so because they were tired of corruption and violence and feel, let's say, the instability of the world right now in which neoliberalism has not delivered to most people in terms of job security, income security, retirement, medical care, all of the things labor relations and living conditions, how will going after the left and all of the things that uh, Bolsonaro is promising do? What will it do to actually address the conditions of those who voted for him? Well, 
the financial elite is pressuring him to be very fast with this program, right? And it's possible that it will be very unpopular. If he abandons the new liberal programs, on the other hand, the elites will abandon him. Mm-hmm. And if he doesn't, then, of course, the people will turn his back on him. So I think that the most probable scenario is that you try to be somewhere in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, neither implementing all of his economist Gaddy's plan, but he will not also make a nationalist U-turn. Okay. He possibly will try to pass the pension reform in the first year in office. And the thing is that, Susie, he will try to intimidate Congress with Sergio Moro, because Sergio Moro will also have access to our bank accounts of anybody in Brazil, because this was something that is currently with the finance ministry and is usually used mainly to find illegal transactions in general, but Sergio Moro will be able to have a detailed look on these accounts. Right. And so he can, for instance, intimidate politicians with that. And of course, police will do a bloodbath, probably. Mm. And we can expect some arbitrary arrests, like, for instance, Guilherme Bolos, I think he might try. He had this fake news policy that he probably would transform as a state policy to make a direct connection with his constituency not intermediated by the traditional press. For instance, yesterday, he didn't let the three main newspapers in Brazil to participate in his first collective mm-hmm. interview, right? And he'll probably also try to make a cultural blitzkrieg, right? Like militarization of schools, glorification of military dictatorship, discussion of the Bible... I want to address two questions, and one of them is his foreign policy strategy within Latin America. Today we see an offensive by Trump and Bolton against the so-called leftist governments in Latin America, hoping to take the Bolsonaro example and use it to get rid of, say, Venezuela, Cuba, and others. Number one, has he articulated Bolsonaro, an international or a continent-wide strategy? And two, finally... Where is the left after this election, and what can we hope to see from it? Okay. Yes, today Bolton said that Bolsonaro should be an example for Latin America, right? Mm-hmm. He said already that he would like to make a new trade agreement with the U.S., and there are some talks of an authorization for a military U.S. military base in the northeast of Brazil. And possibly, of course, he would isolate Bolivia, Ecuador, and especially Venezuela, of course, and he would limit the soft-soft coalition, the BRICS, for instance, and try to limit China's rise in the region. He said already that Mercosur would not be a priority for him, and for Venezuela, of course, that's the most tense issue, because Venezuela is a neighboring country in Brazil, and its crisis has provoked a massive migratory flux towards many of Latin American countries, including Brazil. And the new Colombian president said that he would support if U.S. and Brazil together 
would decide to make a military intervention to change the regime in Venezuela, right? Mm. Of course, uh, there are a lot of people here in Brazil that think that's uh, a crazy stuff. But if, for instance, Bolsonaro loses popularity due to the new liberal reform, and as he might get the example, the neocon example, and try a foreign adventure in order to regain popularity. That's not impossible, given that he is very, very aggressive against Maduro. But on the other hand, Brazil has a lot of trade with all Latin America. And on the other hand, U.S. has never been willing to give to Brazil and new market access to those products that are interesting for, for Brazil. So both the industrialists and some of the agribusiness said already that he could not open up trade with U.S. without any kind of compensation and should not also have trade tensions both with Mercosur, the other countries in Latin America, and China. So we don't know exactly if the material interests of the bourgeoisie will be more important than his ideological inclinations. Okay, it's very early on, Pedro Paolo, but what kind of a fight back do you see and how is the left reorganizing itself? Well, I think the left has first this wedge between Bolsonaro's coalition, the fact that the new liberal reform is very unpopular, and that's a way for a comeback of the left. Actually, that's exactly what Adadi's campaign tried to do, a referendum about new liberal reforms. And there is also this possibility that some of the religious people that backed Bolsonaro became appalled by the state violence. Because, of course, Petita has also some relationship with religious leaders and tried to convey the message during the campaign that Bolsonaro actually doesn't abide for the religion norms of peace and tolerance, right? But on the other hand, there are a lot of fragmentation in the left, as Lula is not any longer the uh, question leader. There are some struggles, both inside PT and between PT and other parties, about who will lead the left in the next round of struggles. And we don't have time to go any further into that, Pedro Paolo, but definitely we're going to come back and revisit that subject as we watch Bolsonaro's first term and see what he's actually able to implement and what kind of strategies and struggles will be mounted to challenge him. And I want to thank you so much. Wish you a lot of safety in Brazil. Pedro Paolo <laughs> Zaluz Bastos okay. has been with us. He's a professor of political I'll economy. Okay, thank you. At Campinas University, he's joined us from Brazil to give us a, a post-mortem, in a sense, of last week's election that saw Jair Bolsonaro come to power with an ultra-right wing, if not proto-fascist, program. I'm Susie Wiseman. Pedro Paolo, thank you for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Thank you very much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. Jacobin Radio.